Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Over the past few weeks, we've been doing a series on different aspects about Jesus. And uh, this morning I'm going to do the last in this series. And I'm just going to look at one question really, which is, why should we worship Jesus? In Revelation 5, verse 12, we read, Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and blessing. Worthy. Do you know, being a church leader has some drawbacks. There's all sorts of things that happen on a Sunday morning that you just can't get involved in. Let me just name a few. Car boot sales. <laughs> They're always on Sunday mornings. Fun runs. Sporting events. Now, fortunately, these aren't things that I miss too much. Most of you will know that I'm not really a big fan of sport, and I can't personally see how you can put the words fun and run in the same sentence. (laughs) I think, when I look around my house, I think we've got enough junk of our own as well. I can't see the point of going out and buying someone else's. But that having been said, I can remember sometimes when I've been in a stadium full of people. A couple of years back, I went to see Leeds Rhinos play Bradford Bulls at Headingley. The place was packed. Now rugby, that is a game worth watching. Because it's got a proper shaped ball, hasn't it? None of this easy, predictable stuff. You know, it bounces all over the place. And actually, we were there. I took our middle daughter, Rachel. And we were there with thousands of others. And it was a great night. And to make it better, these rhinos gave the balls a real trashing. But as a Christian, I found the evening quite an intriguing example of worship. Because as I stood there amongst the thousands of fans, it just occurred to me, what would be the impression of the Old Testament Hebrew worshippers if they could magically be brought back and put in amongst that crowd? My guess is they would have probably assumed that they were at some sort of worship service of an enormous cult. Because the stadium had room for thousands of people and yet the game was a sellout. I mean we were in the cheaper area and yet the tickets had cost 20 quid each. 
And on top of that, there was the cost of food and beer that people were adding to that bill. And yet, on a dark, cold night, people had walked from where they'd parked their car, paid that money to come and watch these teams play. And it seemed like every space in the stadium was filled. The fans stood there through the entire game. Many of them were wearing team shirts. And they were shouting and they were screaming. Meanwhile, music blared through speakers and cheerleaders strutted their stuff. In short, I was at a worship service. And the congregation was larger and more devoted and possibly more generous and more vocal than any church in the UK. It's interesting, when we look upon other cultures, we criticise the false worship that permeates their culture. In villages in India, it's quite usual to see small shrines along the roadside dedicated to their local gods. Inside their houses, there are often altars where they give food gifts and maybe even put blood from animal sacrifices. If you go to the coast, you find large crowds of Hindus, their faces painted undergoing ceremonial washing in the sea. Why? Because they're seeking to appease their gods. Then they have the ongoing feast and the festival throughout the village and there's loud music and there's cheering. Often excessive alcohol and food consumption. Not that different to a rugby match, really. It seems that people are willing to spend so much of their time and money in worship to idols. And it's heartbreaking. Yet, when you talk to Christian believers from some of these countries, they will say that they are disturbed by the idolatry in this country, what they see as idolatrous worship in the West. At first you think, how can they accuse our culture of being into idolatry? But you know, as I stood at that rugby match, it was quite apparent to me that sometimes we can easily see the errors in other people's worship, but we don't look at it in our culture. We're not so objective. I was surrounded by people who were no less zealous, who'd painted their faces to gather together and to cheer on their gods. The difference was their gods played fullback, flanker, hooker, etc. They were wearing replica shirts in tribute and they were patting one another on the back and giving high fives in celebration when one of their gods did something special. But we need to look at the subject of worship in light of the person and work of Jesus. And so I'm going to look at it in a number of stages. I'm going to start off by saying 
what worship isn't. We'll look at what worship is in a minute, but let's start off by defining what worship isn't. And we need to do that because there's a tendency, particularly amongst Christians, to define worship too narrowly. And by doing that, we can overlook the fullness of what worship really is, according to Scripture. So firstly, worship is not something done only by Christians or spiritual people. Because everyone was made to worship God, everyone in their inner beings is in fact a worshipper, whether or not they have any religious or spiritual devotion. It's because we're made in the very image of God. Secondly, worship is not down to a style of music. There have been what are called the worship wars amongst various Christian groups in recent years. And although the body count is relatively low, there are those who prefer modern styles and contemporary worship, and those who prefer the ancient hymns. They're essentially a battle over the style of music played in church for the purpose of corporate singing. Now the trouble is, such conflicts reduce the concept of worship to little more than a style of music or the preferred kinds of instruments that are used, whether we prefer an organ or a guitar. When the Bible speaks of worship, it does include God's people gathering together to sing praises to God. But worship is something much bigger than just singing or musical tastes. In Ephesians 5:19, we read, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The third point Worship is not something which is connected to a time or place. If you read in John 4, you'll find there's a discussion between Jesus and a woman. And that discussion starts off about the fact that she is uncertain about where and when worship is going to happen. Jesus responds to her, And he says that worship is an ongoing, unbroken life of communion with God. Empowered by the Holy Spirit and informed by truth. That's what he says. So worship doesn't have to happen at specific places or specific times. It doesn't have to be here on a Sunday morning. Worship is not limited in that way. Worship is intended to exist as a ceaseless lifestyle of God's people in every time and in every place. The fourth one. Worship isn't something that starts and stops. 
our services might start and stop. But the worshipful life of a Christian is meant to just continue. The author A.W. Tozer said, If you will not worship God seven days a week, you don't worship him one day. What he was saying is, if you haven't got a lifestyle of worship to God, then actually what you bring on a Sunday morning isn't true worship. So we've looked at what worship isn't. So what is it? Worship is living our lives, whether individually or corporately, as a continuous living sacrifice to the glory of a person or a thing. Now the connection between glory and worship is quite clear. You can look at verses such as Romans 11.35 through to the opening verses of chapter 12, where it says, To him be glory forever. Amen. And then Paul continues, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, in that small section of scripture, there's a lot packed in. And Paul connects a number of vital truths about worship. Firstly, it's about holding a person or a thing in a place of glory. And then we can come before that person or thing and worship it. And then thirdly, that our worship of that person or thing that we hold in glory is done by means of making some form of sacrifice. Now the word glory means giving something some importance, some preeminence, some priority. It's about saying that something is our greatest treasure or our deepest longing. Or the source of our hope. So when we hold something in a place of glory, what we're doing is we're making it our real God. And people can, and in fact do, hold various things and people in that position. They hold them in a position of glory and then they worship them by making sacrifices. And because we have limited resources, whether you're talking about time, energy or money, we allocate those things to what we consider are most important. The things that hold the highest status in our life. And so by doing that, what we do is we make them functionally a god in our life. Whatever we hold in that position of highest glory is by definition our God. And so practically what we do is we worship it and we make sacrifices for it. The biblical word for worship, sometimes in scripture, is actually translated as sacrifice. 
And that's a helpful insight, because what it tells us is the things we make the greatest sacrifices for are the things that we seek to glorify and worship most. So, for example, if we're someone who eats and drinks in excess, we're actually worshipping our stomach and sacrificing our health. If we sacrifice our relationship with God and with other people for a hobby, whether it's sport or music or crafts, then what we're doing is worshipping that hobby. And if we give our bodies to sexual sin, then what we're actually doing is we're worshipping sex or the other person. And we're putting their glory as our highest aim. And in so doing, what we're sacrificing is holiness and intimacy with God in that process. In summary, whatever we give our time, our energy, our body, our mind, our money, our focus, our devotion and our passion to, is that that we glorify most. And when we then make sacrifices, what we are doing is worshipping that thing. As I said before, because we were made for the express purpose of worshipping God, everybody is a worshipper. The only difference is who or what we choose to worship. I don't know how many of you remember the day when the PlayStation 3 machines came out. Yeah? I don't know. Do you remember? Eve does. I can tell by the look on her face. On the day that video console went on sale, despite the fact it cost several hundred pounds, and an additional £30 for each game you want to play, people slept outside of shops to wait for the doors to open so that they could purchase one and then spend the rest of their days and nights, possibly calling in sick to work, to give themselves in worship to a video game. The Bible's full of examples of false worship. And if you look at the first two commandments in Exodus 20, quite simple. It says, there is only one God, and that God alone is to be worshipped. Martin Luther said that we break the rest of the commandments only after we've broken those first two. What he means by that is that if the one true God is my only God, and I worship only that God, then I won't end up committing breaches of the other commandments. Because I won't get into idolatry by worshipping my job. I won't get into not taking a Sabbath day's rest. I won't get into worshipping my anger and becoming violent. I won't get into worshipping sex and committing adultery. I won't get into worshipping things and stealing them. And I won't get into worshipping success and coveting what other people have. So what he was saying was, before we can commit 
breaches of those other commandments, we've got to have already broken the first two. The opposite of worship is idolatry. It's the worshipping of something or someone other than the one true God of the Bible. The Christian philosopher Peter Kreft said, the alternative to theism, the belief in God, is not atheism, but idolatry. Now this theme of worship or idolatry is really one of the major themes that goes throughout the entire Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, what you find is the Jews were going backwards and forwards. The kings were either one or the other. And then we see that Paul talks about a pattern of false worship as failing to glorify God. And he says it leads to an overinflated and arrogant view of ourselves. And it ends up with us worshipping the created things rather than the creator. You can read about that in Romans 1, verse 21 to 25, where it says, For although they knew God, they didn't honour him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their own hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You know, the root of all sin is this confusion between who is the creator and his creation. The worship of created things can either be the worship of things that God has made, such as the environment or even our own bodies. Or it can be the worship of things that we've made. A good example of that is those TVs that sit in the corner of our room. Now don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with TV in itself. It's the hours that we can be tempted to spend paying homage to that little glowing box that demands sacrifices of our time and to whom we erect little shrines when we put all our seats facing it. The result is that something that could be a good thing, because TV in itself is not evil, becomes elevated to a god and becomes a bad thing. Often, the God that we worship is as simple as the one we see in the mirror every morning as we brush our teeth or shave. I just want to ask you some questions to help you see 
whether you have false gods in your life. Who or what do you make sacrifices for? Who or what is most important to you? If you could have anything or any experience you wanted, what would that be? Who or what makes you most happy? What's the one thing or the one person you couldn't live without? What do you spend your money on? To what do you devote your spare time? Now the human heart is a bit of an idol factory. It just makes them. It makes idols out of everything from politics to hobbies, recreation, sports and crafts. So you get some men worship old cars. They worship their houses and spend time improving them. They spend all their time and their money renovating. And they sacrifice time with God and time with the people he's called them to love, like their families and their wives. Some women worship their own beauty. They spend so much time, energy and money on their own looks that they neglect God and they neglect their husbands, their children and their friends. Some worship their favourite band and spend hours gathering the latest news, listening to the newest songs, tuning into interviews, buying the latest merchandise and maybe even travelling the country to catch the latest concert. So I'm trying not to look at Eve on that one. <laughs> Eve is a Cliff Richard fan. Okay. She, she came in in a bit of a rush the other Sunday morning because she'd had to wait till the booking lines opened for a concert in Sheffield. Sorry, Eve. <laughs> it's about getting it in proportion, though. But <clears throat> You did, just, yeah. But none of these examples can compete with some of the other forms of worship in our culture. In Paul's day, he accused some people of worshipping their stomachs. I think in our day, it's not the stomachs that are so much of the problem. It's a few inches south of there. People spend more money every year on pornography than is spent on country music, rock and roll, jazz, classical music, West End plays and ballet combined. The annual rentals and sales of adult videos and DVDs worldwide now comes to more than $4 billion every year. There's about 11,000 pornographic films made each year. That's 20 times the number of mainstream films that are made by Hollywood. And in Britain alone, there's now over 300 strip clubs. On the internet, 
the top word searched for is sex with porn, nude, playboy and erotic stories coming only shortly behind. Why? Because the god Eros continually calls people. People are worshippers. And they are desperate to worship someone or something to put purpose in their life. But thankfully, Jesus came to enable us to worship God through him. Though mankind believed the lie of the serpent in Genesis, that we can be our own God and we can live in our own glory, we remain at heart worshippers. Martin Luther said, We are now bent in towards ourselves, worshipping ourselves and incapable of breaking the horrendously depressing loop of me-ism. But because Jesus lived the perfectly sinless life of unceasing worship that fully glorified God the Father, his life, his death and his resurrection alone can reconcile us to God. So only through Jesus can we be made true worshippers instead of idolaters and glorify God. A few weeks ago when we looked at what happened on the cross, you'll remember me talking about the phrase that had been used, the great exchange, when Christ gave up everything he had for us to take on board everything we had. And in that, Jesus saved us from worship of ourselves and gave us back the ability to worship God again. And the Bible speaks of this wondrous work of Jesus in a simple worshipful term. It says it was his glory. In Hebrews 2 verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Romans 6 verse 4 teaches that our worship includes a new life lived to the glory of God in the pattern of the life of Jesus. It says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. But not only are we called to worship through Jesus, we also need to worship like Jesus did. Jesus is the person who's worshipped God the Father with the most glory of anyone who's ever lived. He is the perfect worshipper. Jesus lived in glory before time began. He was the second member of the Trinity. 
And he spoke about his worship, saying, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you would have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's in John 17, verses 5 and 24. The Trinity is our perfect model for worship because each member of the Trinity truly honours and glorifies each other ceaselessly and perfectly. The fact that God made us in his image means that we were made for that unceasing communion with him in a life of continual worship to his glory. But our unceasing worship has been broken by sin, which separated us from God. And as a result, Jesus entered the world. He entered human history to take away our sin and reconnect us to God that we were created to be with. He lived that life of perfect glory to his Father so that we can look at everything in his life, whether it was the ordinary or the extraordinary. And it was born out of a life of ceaseless worship that glorified God. Jesus' life destroys any idea that worship is a sacred thing, that we have to do at a special time or a special place. Whether we're cutting the grass or washing the dishes, those moments can be as sacred and as glorifying to God as raising our hands on a Sunday morning. And Jesus himself modelled that. Because if you think back over his life, 90% of his earthly life was doing physical work, either as a boy or working as a carpenter, as a young man. All of our life is to be lived as ceaseless worship. In 1 Corinthians 10, this is summed up in verse 31, where it says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we worship through Jesus. We worship like Jesus. But actually, we worship Jesus. Mormons don't pray and don't worship Jesus. They're grateful to Jesus, but their worship is reserved only for God the Father. But if you look in scripture, not only should we worship like Jesus and through him, but we should worship him as well. And that's because Jesus is both the glory of God and the God of glory. In John 1.14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. To understand the importance of worshipping Jesus, we need to just look a little bit in the Old Testament to see how Jesus was worshipped in heaven before his entrance into human history. And what we see is that angels worshipped Jesus 
as part of the only God. Hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah gives us one of the most glorious snapshots of heaven in the whole of scripture. And you know it. It's Isaiah 6, the opening verses. When Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and around him stood the seraphim and each had six wings and with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flewed flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory. And if you look in John 12 verse 41, John clarifies that who Isaiah saw and worshipped that day was none other than Jesus. It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of Jesus. Jesus was worshipped in heavenly glory before his earthly incarnation. Do you know, echoing that vision of Isaiah, Queen Victoria, our longest serving monarch, she reigned from 1837 to 1901, said something really quite phenomenal for a monarch. She said, I wish that Jesus would come in my lifetime so that I could take my crown and lay it at his feet. <coughs> in addition to being worshipped in heaven before he came into human history, he was worshipped as God by so many people during his lifetime on earth. I've drawn up a short list. It starts with the Magi in Matthew 2.11. There's the blind man in John 9.38. There's the guy who was delivered from the demons in Matthew 5.6. There was Thomas the doubter in John 20.28. There was Jesus' best friend John in John 12.41. In fact, all of the disciples in Matthew 14.33. He was worshipped by a group of women in Matthew 28, 8 and 9. By the mother of James and John in Matthew 20, 20. He was worshipped by angels if you read Hebrews 1, 6. He's worshipped by entire churches according to 1 Corinthians 1, 12. Acts 1, 14 tells us he was worshipped by his own mother and his brothers. Matthew 11:14 to 16 says little children came and worshipped him. And in Romans 9 verse 5 Paul makes it quite clear that he was worshipped by a former enemy, Paul. Jesus repeatedly accepted the worship of people throughout the course of his life. He never told them off, he never corrected them or told them he was wrong. Today, Jesus is worshipped in heaven and on earth. 
just by a few billion people. About a third of everyone alive on earth today worships Jesus as God. If you read the book of Revelation, the heavenly scenes in that book show us the ongoing worship of Jesus as he's seated on his throne in glory. And that theme of worship comes together and it builds throughout that book in quite a magnificent way. In Revelation 4, we see the Lord God Almighty himself being worshipped by the 24 elders. And they worship him as their creator. As elders, as spiritual leaders, they are setting the example for all of God's people. And it says they're falling down before the throne, laying their crowns before him. And saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God. To receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And then as you move on into Revelation chapter 5. The attention turns from God the Father to the one seated at his right hand. That's Jesus. But rather than quietening down, the worship rises in tempo and volume. Because Jesus is as fully worthy as worship as the Father. And so you find then in Revelation 5, 11 to 13, an endless choir of angels join with those elders in worship of Jesus. And together they worship Jesus not only for being the creator, but also the redeemer. And they sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And then, joining both these humans and angels in the worship of Jesus, every bird of the air, beast of the field, and fish of the sea joins in. I mean, it's a bit like a Disney film. And they're all singing in unison to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And then in Revelation 7, verses 11 to 12, this worship of Jesus grows even bigger. Because every angel joins in in his praise. It says they encircle the throne on which he sits in glory. And John says they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then in Revelation 15 verses 2 to 4, all those who'd been martyred for their devotion to Jesus turn up on the scene as well. And they're given instruments by God himself to play in the worship band. And that band leads all of creation in the worship of Jesus. It leads the heavenly chorus. And they start to sing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
Now, it sounds pretty good so far, doesn't it? But then, believe it or not, the worship continues to increase. And in Revelation 19, we hear what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And so in one of the closing scenes of the Bible, one of the closing scenes of human history, we read of nothing less than the unveiling of the glory of Jesus over all creation and as the source of our light, the object of our love. And as he gets this glimpse of heaven, John says... And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So in conclusion, the reason that so many people hold something in glory above Jesus is because they believe the simple lie that God's glory and our joy are in conflict. They believe that if we live for God's glory it comes at the cost of our joy. So people who want to live for the pursuit of happiness glorify and worship what they think will give them joy. But tragically, what it often brings is a feeling that they're not satisfied. Because we were made to worship Jesus, the Christ, the King of glory. And it's only in being worshippers of Jesus that we can find joy. And this glorious truth means that in worshipping Jesus, God is glorified and we are satisfied. Through the worship of Jesus alone, there is joy, there is freedom, there's holiness and there's life. And only by worshipping God our creator are we free to enjoy creation. By correctly eating, drinking, sleeping, playing, working, laughing, loving, weeping, marrying, parenting, living and dying to the glory of God. I'm a Christian and I'm a Christian because I want to be happy. And believe me, I've tried lots of other things in my life to make me happy. But I'm convinced that my desires are from God and they find their satisfaction in him alone. So I just want to ask you, as we come up to this time of year when we celebrate Christ's birth, ask yourself, is there anything taking his place in your life? Is it your family? your friends? Is it food or drink? 
gifts or money, prosperity or your career. Now don't hear me wrong. There's nothing wrong with any of these things when they're in the right place in your life. But just ask yourself the question, are they? And why not spend this Christmas giving the glory where it belongs to Jesus? Amen. I'm afraid there's no tea and coffee today, but it doesn't mean you can't stay and just have a time of fellowship. And then if you're coming for the meal, we need to be there about one-ish. Have a good week. May God bless you. May he keep you. May the light of his grace just shine from you this week and may he give you peace. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 